I think we live in a time where because you can reach directly to the consumer, you can do it, you can run your own business, you can start your own business, you can totally make a living. It's like, yes, it's totally possible to run a home-based business and make a living at it, for sure. You're listening to The Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow-living apparel and lifestyle brand. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having constantly in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. Come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Good morning, Emma. Hi, Mom. What's going on at the farm this week? Well, it's that time of year when if the sun is out, I just cannot be inside. If it's shining, I have to be in it. And that means that lots of things inside are having to wait. But it's raining today, so it's a good day to focus on other things. Have you been planting things outside? Yes, I'm beginning to get a few cool weather things in and starting some seeds inside, but... Most things need to wait, and it's a really tricky time because these warm days make you want to get out and put everything in the ground right now. And it's really deceiving. You're out there in your shirt sleeves, and you think, ah, we're there. Winter's over. But actually, we've got several weeks left before the last frost. And of course, the minute you assume there won't be one is when we'll get a big snow or something. So it's true. (laughs) It's it's true. It's always that way. I always lose things. But what have you been up to? Well, for my birthday, thank you, Mom, you gave me an online quilting class that started right around my birthday every Saturday. And it's only four Saturdays, so this week is the last one. So I've been making a quilt. I've been quilting, and it is so fun. It's actually really cool because I'm using that big box of fabric that we have just like left over from our essential collection. I have some random fabric scraps from other things. And I'm just kind of doing this improvisational like log cabin quilt. And it's just a really fascinating process. It's really actually quite simple. It uses, I feel like, a different part of my brain. It's kind of like putting a puzzle together. And it's also just like full of surprises and I just love it so much. Now it's like all I think about. (laughs) That's interesting because I know you like puzzles. (laughs) Yeah, I do like puzzles. Another thing over here is that my hands are blue again and you know what that means. Oh, you are doing your indigo dyeing. Yeah, I've got my vat out and going and I'm doing scarves, napkins and socks. It is so much fun. Now, all of this talk about planting and quilting and dyeing makes me think about today's episode with Cynthia Main of Sunhouse Craft. Cynthia is a broom maker in Berea, Kentucky, and her brooms are hand-woven without using electricity. 
using locally farmed, natural, sustainable materials. Even besides her brooms, she's like the craft maker of all maker, doer, shaker. She's an amazing person. Yes, and a lot of this conversation has to do with learning skills that were once necessary to everyday life and now, for the most part, have been put aside or forgotten. Cynthia herself from early childhood has had a real hunger for living close to the land and using her hands to make and provide for herself and her admittedly independent lifestyle. She's done farming and she's worked with machines and she's made tools and furniture and done all sorts of woodworking, all of these things. She just learns as they become necessary to do whatever it is she needs to do. And meanwhile, over the last several decades, the culture has been moving away from emphasizing the need for individuals to develop these types of skills. Yeah, people, you know, these days don't need to make their own brooms or quilts or dye their own clothes anymore. You can just kind of find things. And in a way, what kind of we talk about in this episode is about how those things have become like artisan type almost yeah. reserved to a certain type of person who it's it's kind of goes both ways it's like you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to afford these things that people make but also you have to have access to the education and to the materials but also on the flip side it's very simple materials and very simple education and it's this kind of oral tradition that we're we're just removed from because we've had basically in my opinion just like decades of brilliant marketing and manufacturing kind of step in between us and these like more simple things. And so as we discuss this with Cynthia, we talk about how our loss of these tasks and these uh, crafts has, it's it's cost us so many things in terms of a connection uh, to our communities and our surroundings and the materials that we handle and use every day. I love the moment in this interview where she talks about a broom and you kind of, you know, you, you got to sweep something up. So you open your broom closet and you're probably going to pull out your like weird plastic red and gray broom. That's like probably going to break. I don't know. And it's just like, it's not pretty. And just the difference and being like, oh, I really love looking at my broom, kind of honoring those like everyday things. So anyway, so much of what we use now is, is cheap and disposable because that's what's accessible. And we've lost a sense of knowing and really caring where all of our everyday things come from. Yeah, it's so true. And I love that example about the broom and the dustpan as well. Like you want to surround yourself by beautiful things, but somehow why have we devalued the dustpan to the point where, you know, we just want to pay a couple of dollars for it and it's made of plastic and it's not pretty. So you have to hide it away. You know, there once was a time when there was this beautiful thing that you had made mm-hmm. or that someone in your family had made and So I think the point of this conversation, or one of them, is that more and more people are finding their way back to this and finding that it fulfills something in us that's lacking. And to your point, it's not just the territory of artisans at craft shows with their little booths showing you how things used to be done. More and more people are embracing it as something they want to do for themselves whatever the skill, there are a lot of different skills we're talking about here, but there is definitely a resurgence of making. For instance, why do you think 
you are drawn to quilting? That's such a good question because it's so hard to articulate. I just know, like, it's just so satisfying, I think is the best way to put it, and fun, and it feels like it's a connection to the past in some way. Like, there's such beautiful history with quilting and passing down quilts and storytelling and just the act of, like, repurposing fabric, taking tiny little scraps that would otherwise not be useful, piecing them together, making something extremely useful and necessary, like a quilt. It's just so satisfying, and it's not hard. I don't know. I don't, I'm just really really obsessed with it right now I hope it doesn't like I have a lot of passing obsessions so I hope this one sticks around what do you think you get out of dunking your hands in the indigo vat besides blue hands (laughs) yeah (laughs) I think it's so satisfying to use your word there the process is so satisfying and it's so miraculous to me to watch it unfold and this this wonderful natural plant that creates this magical color and to take something and dip it in there and you know indigo dyeing is is more than just dipping it into the vat it's actually a chemical reaction that is very fragile and it can go wrong very quickly so sometimes you if something's off with your vat you can stick it in there and nothing happens and you're like, oh, gosh, what happened? So, you know, you do the things that are recommended to try to get it back into balance. And then when you get it and you dip this thing in and it magically transforms something into this color, it's amazing and it's so satisfying and it's so magical. And I love it, the process and the result. Something else you were saying reminded me, too, of the thing with both of these crafts, these practices they really are kind of they have to be practices it's repeated action kind of over a long period of time and it takes a lot of patience and it really does like force you to slow down and so it's so much of what we talk about all the time about slowing down and so these old ancient crafts are such good like vectors into slower and more satisfying simple living and another thing that comes up during this conversation is the fact that these skills are actually using your body. They involve body movements. They involve your hands. They involve you know being in different positions. I know that dipping in the indigo vat is really a pretty physical thing. You're plunging your hands down in the water, feeling the warm water, you know, moving it around gently, lifting it up, squeezing it out, carrying it somewhere, and it's just it's constant movement. And you're so involved in that, and it it feels really wonderful. Yes, and even during our conversation with Cynthia, she was actually sitting there making a broom while we spoke. It's really fun to watch her do that, and, and you can even hear it in the audio from time to time, her picking up and putting down scissors and making her broom straws all come together. And so um, as you're listening, you can just picture her doing that and then and then go check out her website and get, get a broom. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe as you're listening to this episode, maybe you might go get your mending or you might be um, kneading a loaf of bread or outside on a walk or gardening. (laughs) 
digging in the dirt. Yeah, technology helps us take our entertainment outside. Which yeah, I, I love that. Um, <laughs> and this is another wonderful conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. And here's Cynthia. I don't know. I think I fell down this rabbit hole really early. I mean, you could call it just feeling like a weirdo child or things like that. But I finished high school pretty disillusioned. I was fairly jaded and bought myself a train ticket across the country to California. I grew up in North Carolina and uh, just kind of like did the let's go hitchhike and bike trip and explore activism and see what's out there and learn about the world. I mean, this is the late 90s. So that started opening my eyes to like what was out there. So this is pre-internet exploration. So it wasn't like you could hop on the internet and figure things out or just Google permaculture and know what that was. I mean, I didn't learn about permaculture. So I did that for about six months and traveled. But I finished high school feeling like I didn't know how to do anything and kind of set about learning the basics, like learning how to build, learning about gardening, and sort of a stayed in versions of that realm. And just kind of understanding what it is to be a human who likes to make things and move around and move their body. So sometimes that's leaned me more towards the art world and living in the cities. And sometimes that's leading me more into farming, which meant nearly a decade in agriculture and about a decade making things for a living and kind of weaving back and forth the two worlds and trying to figure out how do I weave sustainability into my making practice. That sort of leads me to now. I mean, and I'm not sure now is like a permanent place any more than anything else has ever been a permanent place, but I do seem to be building a business. <laughs> this is just kind of that continued exploration of sustainability and craft. I have a lot of love for traditional methods. I think they give an entry point for like how to relate to materials and place and things like that in a way that for me makes a lot of sense. So I was farming in Northeast Missouri as part of an organic farm that was a collective. We grew mostly sorghum and broom corn, which will come into play in a minute. So we were farming collectively and I'm from the South. I'm from North Carolina and wanted to be back in the South. And I had the opportunity, Berea, Kentucky is actually the folk arts and crafts capital of Kentucky. And they wanted to maintain that title. So for a number of years, they were running a program where they would allow three artisans to demonstrate their work to the public, pay for you to have a studio, give you a $1,200 a month stipend with the idea that you would kind of launch your biz here. And I got into the fellowship. It was an amazing opportunity because I was stuck in that triangle where I was farming and I wasn't making any money. I would go back to Chicago, work at a high-end cabinet shop to make a little bit of money, going to craft shows and sharing my brooms and wooden wares. And I just couldn't get out of that triangle. Like couldn't just focus on craft or focus on farming. Like I needed all the pieces to kind of survive. So that program really let me start a business, which I was already going to shows and already going to fairs under the name Sunhouse Craft. And now that is a genuine business. It's been mostly me until very recently. And now I've just hit that point where you're going kind of from a solo maker to operating a, a house and the business kind of funds itself as it grows. So this last year I was realizing me in the broom shop, thousands of hours making thousands of brooms. And that's kind of what gave me enough traction to keep pursuing my vision of creating a sustainable local manufacturing business. And can you tell us more about that vision? Yeah, I'm obsessed. I guess I want to give a shout out. I'm really inspired by State the Label down in Athens and by Eastport Pottery in Asheville and oh, Raleigh Denham in Raleigh. 
I feel really inspired by those businesses. So I started making brooms in 2013. It was definitely a weirdo craft. There weren't any other broom makers. I was a woodworker and metal worker previously to that. So there was kind of like this space where not a lot of people were making brooms. Definitely not a lot of people were making dustpans. And I just sort of started in on utility problems. Like I couldn't stand looking at the plastic junky broom every time. It's like you're in the bathroom, you know, and you're looking in your closet and you're like, there's that cheap plastic room that like everything else in your house is beautiful and your dustpan is like not made in a way that feels very harmonious to me. So that's kind of where that started. But yes, I spent a lot of time coopering and in other crafts and we're definitely expanding. Sourcing is a huge passion of mine and I finally have been able to hire someone to help me connect directly with farmers and just work the whole supply chain. And most people who are working small manufacturing know this these days. It's not like I can just be like, oh, I need a two millimeter hemp cord, you know, made locally. And you can't like walk down the street and get that. So for this project, I'm choosing the entry point of like, I have the sales. Now we have the money to go back to the farmers and be like, hey, we will buy this from you or we will support you farming this for us. And I have the farming experience to talk about the crops and what we want and that sort of thing because some of the crops are a little stranger. I know probably some of your listeners are like diving into hemp right now for those same reasons and like, there's a hole in hemp manufacturing for fiber production, you know, in the United yeah. States. And so that's something that we're looking at. And I finally have help on my team who's helping me source and figure out where the problems are. So, you know, grand vision. Yeah, I want to have a business that helps reinvigorate the entire local supply chain and is equitable and a great place to work that people are excited about that makes practical goods for the home. I'm so intrigued by the fact that I've been thinking a lot about this recently how you know we're kind of in this world where supply chain is something we think about a lot but the average consumer that doesn't even occur to them probably maybe it's beginning to on a bigger scale but in general you know people can just go you know run up to target or whatever and get their plastic dust bin certainly was the case for me before I got into all this. It just never occurred to me to think about, you know, what it was made of or what it came from. I mean, these things have come to me slowly over the years, you know. So the conversation about supply chains, it always comes up when we're talking about small manufacturers and people that are making things. And it's just huge. And we want to spread the word that it's time for all of us consumers to start thinking more about that because it leads down so many paths that are important to slow living and sustainable living. And it's the key to so much of this. At the same time, your work with Sunhouse Craft is part of what we call the current renaissance of, of making. Suddenly the spotlight is on people that are making things and you're the perfect example. Here you are making something commonplace every day, the broom. Is this here to stay? Is it going to grow? Is Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, it's totally got to be here to stay. I mean, I didn't really have a choice, you know, like this is what I love to do. I am a body learner. I'm comfortable moving all day. I'm not comfortable if I'm not moving all day. I've always had physical jobs. I mean, maybe this will be the bonus of living in an anxious society is that people will need to get that anxiety out through their bodies and through movement and, you know, focused movement, you know, has a byproduct of manufacturing. I mean, I think that's what it is. It feels really healthy to me to have a lifestyle like this and it feels really healthy to work all day and it feels normal. And I think we live in a time 
where because you can reach directly to the consumer, like if I ran this business just in Berea, Kentucky, we couldn't compete with the Walmart and the Target and things like that. But with e-commerce and the internet and other stores carrying our wares, we can have a legitimate business making things. You know, it's pretty phenomenal. So I think it's totally here to stay. I mean, I'm a, I would be one of those people out there preaching about it being like, it's great. You know, you can do it. You can run your own business. You can start your own business. You can totally make a living. If I wanted to stay just a solo broom maker, you know, and I de-automated the whole process. It's just purely handmade. You can do it non-electrically. We actually had our electricity shut off in the building for months and totally made a living. It's like, yes, it's totally possible to run a home-based business and make a living at it for sure. Wow, that's amazing. It's inspiring to me as well. And I want to hear about your work and what you're doing and how it relates to the setting that you're in and Appalachia as a whole and the kind of the history of your craft. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think along that same vein of being excited about local manufacturing, I think there's a lot of clues to what people were able to do traditionally from the land where one is where that train of innovation last left off, like where people's direct relationship with the land had arrived as a craft and as a people. And I know that many diverse cultures have lived on this land. So that's not just referring to like settler or, you know, what we know as Appalachian culture today, even though that's a mix of cultures. It's kind of like picking up where that story left off. And, you know, like I'll go to Bria College has a, a craft archive and like look through historically, because again, you're looking for things that aren't made anymore. So it's like, okay, what were they using previously and what's possible? And I use a lot of those traditional techniques as a launching point to understand basic design. I think the materials inform what I make and kind of traditional, like how can you actually use that material? We run some products that we were given the originals by Shaker Village because they didn't have anyone to make their hand brooms. And they were like, can you kind of re-engineer these for us? And you know, that was a really fun entry point. And other than that, I tend towards entry point styles are what's known as Appalachians. You know, I'm interested in barrel making or coopering as well. Some of the traditional coopering, it's like, well, where did that come from? And where did those styles come from? And where did the weaving come from? Like, I haven't, you know, traced the origin further than kind of like the last game of telephone in Appalachia. Like, okay, well, where was this craft when people were still making things from things that you could grow here? You know, I know there's like a rich cross history there to explore as well. Yeah. What's coopering? Coopering is barrel making. Oh, cool. So Cynthia, what are the materials that you use for your brooms or the primary material? And are they grown around there? Primarily, we use broom corn, which is, it is a sorghum. It's just called broom corn. The English used to call everything with a seed head corn. And we grew a Puerto Rico test plot here last year. It went well, and we're looking for some more farmers to grow this year. Hopefully, we'll grow a few acres this year. And then cordage-wise, we tend to use a lot of hemp. Yeah. And that's another thing that we have our sights on. But it's going to take a little work to get a local manufactured hemp. But we're talking to some farmers who grow it who are really excited. So we're exploring that. I also do use Champico or agave fibers which we do buy from a distributor actually who gets it from a farmer in Mexico. I'm just in love with that fiber. I'm trying to think of a local replacement. I kind of am somebody who sits at the crossroads of traditional woodworking and broom making and kind of brought that fiber over from the 
woodworking world. It's just a really appealing natural fiber. I, I'm a sucker for it. <laughs> Those are the main materials. We're really familiar with the hemp issue because for years we've been interested in a local or at least domestic source of hemp for making textiles. And as you say, there's a a big hole in that in terms of textile manufacturing. Three or four years ago, we went to this big hemp symposium out in Colorado. And I remember sitting in this auditorium and there were all these people and probably 95% of the people in there were interested in growing hemp for CBD. And and the speaker said, you know, how many of you are interested in, you know, hemp production for textile? And, you know, we raised our little hands, but there, there, it was just very, very few people. And he said out there, he said, this is an incredible opportunity for hemp manufacturing in the future. That as we came to find out is it's being slowly legalized. What the Farm Bill 2018, it Mm. was removed from the controlled substances list across the country. So that made it a state issue. Each state was going to decide, you know, how to grow it, what the rules were and all of this. As far as our state goes, people are really still in the phase of, you know, how to grow it, how to make it work and all this. Then we have the huge thing of processing and manufacturing, like you said, before we have a real supply of it. So, so we're just kind of putting that hemp thing on the back burner, you know, <laughs> seeing what happens over the next few years. Well, Kentucky is a pretty interesting state for it. The last big mill closed here in the 50s, and it's got a great hemp history. And there's a lot of advocates here and a lot of farmers growing it, you know, mostly for CBD. So they're in the game, but there's still the processing is mostly missing. There's a couple of people doing small scale, but it's, it's exciting. You know, uh, we've gotten some really positive leads. I'm trying to hopefully get a little further with this this year. I really want to do an all USA at, at the worst, you know, and yeah. ideally all super hyper local product is what we want for sure. Personally, how connected to agriculture are you? Are you growing your own stuff? Do you do any of that still? At this moment, we're working on a pretty massive building renovation. Okay. So we bought a building. It was a numbers game, honestly. Like if you're bootstrapping a business, this is one of those strange towns where it's cheaper to own than to rent. Mm-hmm. So uh, we own a downtown storefront. <laughs> wow. And we've been slowly renovating it. And that is just, you know, I needed to be realistic about what we can and will do. We're going to have a rooftop garden, but not a large one. And then, yes, we're going to try and get land. You know, I also, I have a big love for timber framing. I think my skills are very much old school farmer. Like it wouldn't be unusual to meet someone agriculturally who timber framed and blacksmithed and, you know, grew all their own crops, worked with animals, played music in their free time and like worked on being a good person, totally the camp I fall into. But I find people are often like surprised when I'm like, oh yeah, we want to do that because I also love timber framing and I love supering and I love this. And, you know, I, I just think it's like, for me, it's just more old school agrarian than it is bizarre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you do any teaching, any classes? I, I think that would be an awesome. I, yeah, I do. We hope to have land to have more classes and things like that. I lived without electricity for two years, totally off grid. So feel really comfortable. Like I'm like, oh, you want a killer meal made for people on rocket stoves and solar ovens for 30 people? I got you, you know. I think there's a lot of interest. And I think what I bring to the table as a teacher is 
it's no big deal. Totally yeah. do it. It's not unusual or weird. And maybe that's sort of what I was trying to say about that old school farmer way of being is like, it's okay. Like you can make your own table. You can mill your own wood. You can dry your own stuff. You can build a solar kiln. You can cook on a rocket stove. You can make your own candles. You can preserve food. Like it's no big deal, you know? And I think that and like a fun spirit about it is like the best thing I can bring to the table. And I think that comes a little bit with pursuing things for a long time. Like 20 years in, you're like starting to learn something, you know, that you can share, <laughs> you know, and like, yeah, that feels good. You know, that feels like, oh, yeah, I can share where I'm at. I've had some wonderful teachers in their 70s. And like, I'm more looking for the kind of teacher I'm going to be then, you know, that's what I'm working mm-hmm. towards. But I'm happy to share enthusiasm and like, <laughs> the little bit I know now, you know? Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> what you're saying about all that and the skills and they're totally accessible to anybody. It makes me think of what you were saying a few minutes ago about being able to choose a life where you use your body, you use your hands, you're sort of moving through the world. And you were speaking about, you know, you're in high school, you sort of felt like you didn't know where it was going to get you all the high school education. So our education, really, the way it is now, it teaches, of course, important skills, but it's mostly about funneling you into some cerebral job where you can earn money to buy the things you need to live. But what you're talking about old school agrarian is like the education to kind of make a living for yourself off the land, you know, materials, food, all those things. And those things just aren't taught anymore. So you're talking about speaking. I think, you know, we're at a place where there's going to be more and more hunger for that, you know, especially look how much education is changing. Look how much education has changed in the last year. Oh my goodness. All kinds of things. It is just turned upside down. And I think if I can be allowed to predict, which I don't know why, but I am. There are going to be so many people that are going to be choosing this or are more of this. And, and maybe, maybe schools and educational institutions will embrace it more. But isn't there in Berea, Kentucky, in Berea College, all about this? Berea College is extremely compelling. They provide a tuition free experience to every student that goes there and have a strong history of craft, though the focus of the college is just a general liberal arts school. But I think their model of understanding kind of like a gift economy and real practice, like people pay it forward who go to that school, you know, once they've graduated and completed and they have the endowment, keep going, keep going, keep going and really provide a killer educational experience for people. The people in their craft department are extremely thoughtful and great teachers and carriers of traditions. And they have a great farm program, farm to table program. And just recognize the importance of that. Maybe similarly in that vein. So I actually spent a little bit of time at community college in North Carolina, Central Carolina Community College at that moment. And admittedly, it was some of my friends starting the program, but they started a program in appropriate technology and sustainable agriculture and biodiesel. Like I got to take my biodiesel mechanics there and learn how to make biodiesel and go to a class on winter twig identification. And I think seeing community colleges and, you know, public affordable spaces fill those sorts of niches is really smart. 
And just to backtrack a little to what you asked about us teaching, we're cooking up an exciting idea that I'm not really ready to talk about yet, but it should open up a lot of opportunity for people who don't know where to start to make some things that I think will find really empowering. Stay tuned. That's so exciting. It's really exciting. I've just been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. I just read a beautiful piece by Robin Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, about the gift economy and reciprocity. And I've been thinking just in the past like 48 hours a lot about like, what would life look like without money? And like, if we didn't need money. And I think that a lot of people are thinking about this sort of thing right now. And I wonder what your thoughts are on like, before that happens, someone in this world who understands that they have a yearning for something more and more connection, whatever that is, might lead them to this type of craft or to, you know, to maybe buy your broom or take a class on how to do it. It can be frustrating because participating in these things can feel like it's expensive. And, you know, I mean, obviously buying things from artisans is expensive. It can feel out of touch. I don't know. I guess, I mean, you just said that you want to create something that feels accessible for people who don't know where to start, but I guess my question is, can you expand a little more on that and maybe speak to the person who is feeling frustrated at this in-between spot of like, I want to participate, but I don't feel like I can and money, what is money? Absolutely. I mean, as someone who, well, A, I essentially lived in a hammock for the better part of those two years. And I will say there's some negative, like there's a shadow side to what I'm going to tell you. Like, I think I was, to be honest, dealing with my own like mental health issues as far as like feeling comfortable taking up space. So there was a lack of a need for security on my part that both allowed me a lot of freedom and exploration, but also, you know, left me broke (laughs) for a long time. So if somebody knows what it's like to not have any money, I think about these things a lot. There's this idea of utopia, right? So the idea that a utopia is something to aim for, to me, like my job as a person is to span the gap from what I see as utopia from where we are. So it's going to be a constant weaving process. I can't like poof instantaneously. And, you know, I mean, this gets into the political slightly. It's one of the problems I have with like legislation or top down thinking. It's really hard to poof over here and not have grown into it. So I think for people who are frustrated, I think that frustration points to a healthy awareness of the gap. And like the work that needs to be done. And while I think it can be exhausting and frustrating at times, I think minding that gap is really real and setting like long-term goals as a culture and a society that loves to show like, I've changed, we're different. You know, it's this idea of slow and steady, not very popular, but I think it leads to healthier long-term results. So kind of what I would say is have faith in your vision and know that it's going to take time to get there. Like we didn't get into this mess overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight. You know, one of the things as a maker and as a provider of services is, well, one, I think my work is fairly affordable. It goes down to $4, you know, in price, you know, on up through there. So it's like, I think there's some accessibility there. I offer a lot of classes on YouTube. People can watch for free and get their own materials. And I always mention if you don't have money and you want to trade, like I'm totally down for that. Then I do a lot of trading and it's really fun and fantastic. And not even just with, you know, more skilled makers, but with people who need that access. And I want to encourage people to take me up on that. Sometimes I worry, and you know, this is my bias as a woman, 
like I would always have trouble coming to the front and thinking that opportunity was for me or that I could ask for that, you know, and that kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about like working through my own mental evolution. I just want to encourage people like when I offer that or when other people offer that, it's for you, you know, (laughs) whoever you are. Like if you're like, oh, I could really use that. And that is like baked into the, the mission of this business is that affordability, that accessibility. And I read the same article. So it's really has stuck with me. And I was thinking about how when we moved out here into our rural area about eight years ago, it was something that was sort of a part of this small culture out here. And it was really surprising. And I I tell this story when we first got here, we were trying to find out we have a really long driveway and we were going to try to find somebody that was going to plow it for us when it snowed. And the, the previous homeowner said, Oh, well, the neighbor does it. And we said, well, how, you know, how much is it? We need to budget that in, you know, that's obviously going to be a big job. And she just said, Oh, he just does it. We were like, what? Sure enough, first big snow, crack of dawn, here comes the neighbor with his tractor, plows the whole thing, doesn't say a word. And you know, we're, we're coming after him going, gosh, thank you so much. You know, can we pay you? And it was like, no, no. And we began to learn that, you know, there were lots of favors we could do for him down the line and many more favors he can do for us. So there is this, it extends to other ways too. We have a guy that shows up at our door. He'll just knock on the door unannounced a few times a year with this giant load of like foraged mushrooms. And he's here, I've got some mushrooms for you. And we're like, oh my gosh, you know, all these hen of the woods and all this great stuff. And, you know, well, can we pay you? What can we do? No, I would just like permission to go bow hunting on your land next weekend and try to get myself a wild turkey or whatever. And we're like, sure. It's really wonderful. It's such a good feeling. It's a win-win. And of course, we don't live in a society that would support that all the time, but there are ways where it shows up and it's really gratifying. It's very community building and it makes you feel supported and safe and, you know, like you're not alone in the world. And it also reminds me of a book I'm currently reading. It's by an Irish fella named Mark Boyle. In 2010, he wrote a book called The Moneyless Man about living without money. The one I'm reading now that's more recent is called The Way Home. It's kind of like a Walden type experience. He's chosen to go out in the woods and he's refusing all technology. And sort of walking you through it. It's just so interesting. It reminds me so much of the things we're talking about. That's great. I don't know. At my finest, I can remember that anything that's like leaning towards a more, and I say it a lot, like a more verdant future, a healthier society, like any drop in the bucket, you know, whether it's tending to my own health or the health of my community is a win, (laughs) you know? So it's like, I'm just trying to add up those little wins. I guess it's a different kind of investing. (laughs) Yeah. I want to go back to something that you said earlier about as women, it's hard to step forward or even just assume, not even assume, but even accept things that are for us or that we deserve things. I believe that it's really programmed into us, this anxiety that we've carried on through like centuries and centuries. And I think that the women that are alive right now are learning to step out of these patterns that have been centuries in the making. I love the connection between refinding these old crafts and this self-sufficiency and that kind of acceptance and how it's almost like we were brainwashed at one point to think that 
we were like too good for those things and we could like get there in other ways we could have it provided for us or we could buy it for ourselves I don't that's not really a question I'm just sort of like musing on that weird twist of like understanding our own autonomy in the world that kind of overlaps with our discussion with Melitza Mari the herbal skincare specialist where we've delegated our skincare to industries and products that you have to buy and most of them are in plastic containers and they contain all these weird things but we just accepted that is something we need to do and in her work you know her message is you don't have to accept that there's some things you can make for yourself uh, there's other things that are are really well made and carefully made with good ingredients and all that and it's it's worth it just to open our eyes to these things so what you said, Emma, just reminds me of that. We're not relegated to some cerebral part of society where we're, we only do these certain things and then other people do the hands-on things or the other companies make the products that we want to use to support us in this other work that we do. It's sort of bracing a more holistic view on things and owning more of our daily sustenance for ourselves. I mean, I would imagine that growing the business and putting this craft out in the world has helped you claim a part of your own power. But can you talk about that a little bit more and your growth around that? I'm like a classic skills junkie. Like I'm a good go-to person if you're like, hey, how do I rehandle a shovel? Hey, how do I, you know, milk a goat? Hey, how do I, you know, just like spent my adult life pursuing that. But in some ways, I think I was also running. I don't know. I mean, it was kind of like how my anxiety was kept I would say at bay, but I would say, long story short, I suffered from really severe anxiety my entire life. But since it was my entire life, I didn't know it. It's just like redirected on all those things. Redirected. So, so there's like the positive proficient side. Like I definitely excelled, you know, found my proficiency as a teacher and that sort of thing. But where it really showed up was in my personal life. And I just full on had a breakdown. Like you can point to the nexus where I bought this building and started really getting serious also as like my mental bottoming out. And in that moment, I mean, and you'll hear this said by people. And I mean, I know this is kind of a cliche story, but this is what happened. Like there's definitely gold at the bottom, you know? <laughs> and I was kind of like, what matters and who am I? that fundamental belief that we're connected to nature and place, like we're part of this world was what was there for me. That being said, having spent my whole life in anxiety and coming out of it now, I'm like really getting to know myself now. So it's this really interesting place of like having all these skills, you know what I mean? But I will say I've watched my business development parallel my mental health. And focusing on my personal and mental health has allowed, I mean, my business has just totally thrived. And it's been kind of amazing to watch that. Like, I'm just like, oh, that was what was holding me back all this time. Yeah, I'm not even sure what the thread of your question was yeah. that led to that answer, but that that's a very real that's answer awesome. for me. And I haven't talked about that publicly because it, it doesn't come up. And I also don't want, you know, the, the tagline for this business is kind of beauty in the everyday and like I said, I'm a big believer that like these experiences, they're sacred in everything. So I've shied away from sharing more of that story just because I don't 
want to turn it into a fairy tale and be like, yeah, that's part of life. Like <laughs> I had a bottoming out and here I am. And, and, you know, it's still occasionally a struggle. I'll still have like a week where I'm in that mental space, but I can remember now, like, you know, you made it however many years in that space, you can probably make it a week. <laughs> yeah. And I'd like to add to that, that these things we're talking about, there's a whole continuum of circumstances and reasons and aspects and influences that each of us, you know, bring to our own experience and our life story at Lady Farmer. We never say, oh, you need to like go off grid and go, you know, do all these things on your own. We're just saying, open your mind and your heart to what you're drawn to and wherever you are on this spectrum of like total off the grid independence to totally plugged into you know 21st century industrial digital life somewhere in there find something that opens you up and resonates with you and lights you up and just reconnects you with nature and reconnects you with the spark of being alive and being a part of the earth as you were saying, like, you can sort of claim our, our place in it. So yeah, I mean, people come with all kinds of stories and variables for bringing them to where they are. Thank you for sharing that part of your story. I think it really resonated and also it really resonates in the craft you make. And there's something so beautiful about creating, coming back to process and the metaphor of process that you are immersed in, I think speaks volumes about why your business has thrived. It just, it takes a while to grow up, you know, it just takes a while. (laughs) Well said, longer than society would have you believe. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm in my sixties. All right. And I'm learning so much. Uh That's encouraging. Yeah. So people (laughs) should not get impatient and think, oh, I should be there now because you don't need to be there. You just need to be here now as the saying goes. So (laughs) Mm-hmm. So, Cynthia, we would love to hear your thoughts on how your work or the way that you live your life or whatever you want to talk about relates to the good dirt. And that can be literally or metaphorically. You know, I love that it sounds like we're going to gossip, like we're going to yeah. talk about the good dirt. <laughs> but I mean, I'm a pretty earnest person in a lot of ways. And I think about goodness in a very plain sense of it. You know, I love the writing of Wendell Berry. I live in Kentucky. <laughs> I mean, these things are true. That doesn't mean I didn't play in a punk band and travel around the country and X, Y, and Z and go to raves when I was younger. Like, these things are all true and none are better than the other. But where I'm at now, it just means like a baseline for a formulation of health, you know, like both the original point and the end point, you know, depending on where you are in the cycle and good just being a defining term for like headed in the right direction. Yeah, I love that. So what is it that you would most like our listeners to know about you and the work that you do? Today's feeling for me and where I find my most inspiration, I do do a fair amount of teaching, or at least I did pre-COVID. And I do do some teaching online, but getting the business off the ground has led me more into production this last year. But probably going to come down to me being like, you can do it. You know, that's that's probably what I want to tell your listeners. You know, because I think for me, my vision has grown and changed over the years, but I have felt a ton of freedom, both in healthy and unhealthy ways to pursue that vision. And I mean, it has just been awesome. And seeing people in classes, you know, especially young girls, 
for people who have never held a tool in their lives, build a building for the first time, you know, make a table for the first time, like use real sharp tools and learn how to sharpen them themselves and then build a structure for their community. There's nothing more empowering for me than seeing that. That's the spirit that I'm like hammering into every piece that I make. It's like a little <laughs> remembrance of my version of that. That is so inspiring, especially when we're kind of tend to buy into the thing that we can buy what we need. And we've been saying this before that we don't have to do it ourselves or we don't have the skills or the patience, but it's true. These are just human skills. Humans have been doing these things for thousands of years and we can do them if you want. You don't have to. No big deal. Everything's a big deal for me. So <laughs> I'm the opposite. I'm like so bold. Like we're about to use lime plaster in the apartment and like I've done, you know, a few buildings worth of earthen plaster, but I've never lime plaster. But I'm like, yeah, no big deal. It's totally going to work out. You know, I'm like mixing lime up there. I'm like, I got this right. <laughs> That's so inspiring. What a great time we live in. We're like, if you don't want to do something, you don't have to. Right, right. <laughs> you don't have to do everything like the pioneers did or whatever. <laughs> you can pick and choose. But one more thing. Can you say a little bit about how 2020 affected your work? Anything that you would like to glean to, to bring forward from 2020 or whatever you want to say about it. I already admitted that I suffer from anxiety. So yeah. 2020, I was like, we need a plan. We need a plan. <laughs> if you want to know how many spreadsheets I have to stay sane, that's my like coping mechanism. Spreadsheets and working out. I got really fit over 2020 because again, that's how I deal with anxiety. So I started weightlifting in the morning. I joined an online fitness group. Everything went digital. And I mean, all the small business owners out there, shout out to you mm -hmm. for how many times mm -hmm. someone was like, pivot, 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 and how much you really mm -hmm. did have to pivot. And we delayed our store opening. Like we had a pretty radical teaching tour planned that we didn't even get to announce, you know, it just was like, didn't happen. My partner, Doug, also ran a business where he was driving and in logistics and on the road all the time. And that was not happening in COVID. And he's an excellent maker. He's in business with me now. So we set up building out a wood shop component. So basically this business has kind of like grown itself from just like broom making to trying to expand back to having a wood shop again. I used to run a small teaching wood shop and 2020 was just kind of like, you know, rolling with the paperwork and the punches. I think a lot of people don't see as small business owners, you're just, it's true. I mean, I would love to find some personal sustainability and it seems like smoother waters here in year two of the business, but just like answering emails at four in the morning, you know, working on spreadsheets after work and like the chunk of the day that's used for making things. And I think businesses with a little more capital probably don't have that as much, but that, so 2020 was like a lot of spreadsheets, a lot of paperwork, a lot of, yeah, pivoting things to online and we're really thankful to be here our business grew for sure in 2020 kind of like shockingly so but also hiring was really hard you know because you're wearing masks when you work with other people and working with that and like training somebody with a mask on because I think people were home more and because I think people were thinking about sustainability in their homes more and looking for things our business grew exponentially so it went from being my business to being like oh my gosh I need help or I'm going to be in the broom shop you know, which I was some weeks, it was like 14 hours a day, six, seven days a week, just kind of hitting that curve and not taking the breath to kind of get out of it, you know, because always feeling a little bit of fear or scarcity, like I need the work, I've got to do it. 2021, we just once again had a larger January than December, as far as sales, and we were close to the public 
So it's just our wholesale and our pre-orders that made us have an even bigger year. So as soon as I think I've got it, the business keeps growing. And that's where, yeah, I look to my friends, like I said, at State the Label and at Eastbrook Pottery and businesses like that who experienced that kind of growth because people understood what they were trying to do, understood the social mission, understood that they're trying to create a positive culture of making and manufacturing in this country where people, you know, have good work and are excited about what they're making. I think people see that in our business and support that. So how can people find you and anything you want to promote or talk about? Sure. The business is called Sunhouse Craft and you can find us, you know, www.sunhousecraft.com, all the things, Sunhouse Craft, like on Instagram, Sunhouse Craft, Facebook, Sunhouse Craft. You know, I get questions all the time. How do you make a better broom? Things like that. I'm pretty happy to answer them. It's me answering all the emails and stuff. So it's like pretty easy to get a hold of me. (laughs) I'm so generous. I'm working on getting a little bit of help with that because I think I think some of it's a little much at times. But yeah, be in touch. And you said you're on YouTube? Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, on YouTube, there's a few broom making classes. And like I said, I don't know whether it'll be this year or next year. It kind of depends on getting all the pieces together for it. But we're definitely going to be launching some surprising products this year. And we will be launching a very, I think, innovative teaching thing that I'm really excited about. That should get more people making some really beautiful stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today, Cynthia. What a great conversation. I've enjoyed it so much. It was a pleasure. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Funny enough, I'm actually really inspired by Cynthia now to, like, use power tools. <laughs> She's such a, like, <laughs> powerful woman. And just listening to her talk and talk about all of that. She's just like not scared of anything of making. She's she like loves figuring things out. And I'm the opposite. If something if I don't get something or know something, I'm like, go straight to Google or like look to see what I can order <laughs> or something. So um, anyways, yeah. I'm she's inspiring to me and I can't wait to, to check out. I'm definitely going to go watch her videos on YouTube, and I hope that she does come up with more classes, and I'm just so looking forward to learning more from Cynthia. Me too. I want to I wanna make furniture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, feel free to share it with a friend that you think might enjoy it, or leave a review or a rating that helps other lady farmers find us. And welcome, and stay tuned because we come up with episodes every week for you guys. We love the good dirt, and we love talking to all these wonderful people. This is one of our favorite things about Lady Farmer, and we're so glad you're here. Thank you for listening. Goodbye, everybody. See you next week.